not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. Hey guys, and welcome to the Three Drink. Let's try that one more time. That's good. That's a good way to start. <laughs> All right. Hey guys, and welcome to the Three Drinks in Podcast, episode number 229. I'm your host, Vince. Over there is your host, Phil. Hello. And in this episode, we are talking about The Matrix Resurrections. I had to think before I said that what's the name of this movie? Uh, before we start, though, I want to ask you to please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Make sure that you give us a rating and even a review if you can. They really help a great deal. Uh, if you want to find us on Twitter or Instagram, we are at 3 Drinks in Pod on both. You can uh, like us on Facebook, and compliments and comments can be sent to 3 Drinks in Podcast at gmail.com. All right, we got through Christmas. I don't know what that means. It was it was just fine. It was, just, it was like, well, we got through it. We weren't storming the beaches of Normandy, people. It was a holiday. Just busy. Who are you having this? Who are you having this conversation with? I don't know. I don't feel like I'm part of this conversation. Oh, to be fair, there was a like a period leading up to Christmas. Where I was like, okay, I'm not going near anybody because I don't want to get COVID before Christmas. Oh. I don't. I don't think it matters anymore. I think we all have it. It's like the zombie apocalypse. We're like, we're all carriers. We just don't know it. Yeah, we're, just, we're just waiting. We're just waiting. So, but that's okay. You know, um, this is the last one for the year for us. This is it. We, uh, we we're run gonna out do of like time. Year, we're gonna do like a year <laughs> interview one, but um, everybody I, knows I, how their year went. Yeah, so. I think. I think. I think we're all we're all okay. Just moving on. I'm forward. I forget which podcast I was listening to where someone's like, listen, there is nothing good to be taken from this. Let's just forget it and move on. I'm like, you know what? I'm a, like, normally, I'm a big fan of like learning from your experiences and taking something positive from something that might have appeared to be negative and moving and taking it with you. And I'm like, no. No, this has been garbage for almost two years. So like... Yeah. <laughs> and we're... T- it was it was a good time. We had a lot of fun, but now it's over. But it's over, yeah. yeah. Oh, we're teachers, so um, we had similar experiences to have to teach during this. And like, Jim Gaffigan just came out with a new special on Netflix. Ah, uh, yeah, I wanted to watch that. You know, and one of the jokes he said, he was like, you know, distance learning. He goes, I, it obviously didn't work. He goes, we let them learn on the same device that they play Minecraft on. Because that's like having a Weight Watchers meeting in a Wendy's. <laughs> it's like, what were we thinking? <laughs> Which is what I tell people. Everyone's like, how was that? I'm like, it was awful. <laughs> it, it was, I, I, you can't, I can't do my job virtually the way that many people I know can. They can sit at home and read spreadsheets on the couch just as easily as they can do it in a, in a cubicle. But teaching doesn't really work like that so and good for you if you thought you were accomplishing something <laughs> it's a way to stay positive good for you <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, have another slice of cake. You earned it. Yeah. Go ahead. So, but this is the this, this is the last movie on um, the Warner Brothers slate that will be released digitally and in the theaters. They're not going oh. to do that anymore. Well, that's good for all the people who thought they'd be getting paid a lot more money than they did. So, I mean, that's not entirely true. They did pay like Gal Gadot a lot of money, you know, as like a compensation. But it's funny. You, the only one you heard about suing somebody was. Um, what's her face suing Disney uh, for yes. for Black Widow? I can't think of her name now. Scarlett Johansson. That yeah, that so the, because that didn't come out in theaters at all. Did Wonder Woman? I think it came out in both. That's why. I think I I don't know if Black Widow didn't come out in theaters. I do know that it came out as a Disney Plus premiere access movie at the same either instead of or at the same time as. And she I think, was I think pissed. I think because it didn't go into theaters. Yeah. And she got she won. Like either she won or they settled or one of the two. Yeah. Like I don't know. But um I mean, okay, fine. Like the contract said this is gonna happen, and then you don't do it and like we get it. But like <laughs> where's my money? <laughs> sure. And that's that's a lot of things, you know, kids who were in college and they were sent back home to study on their couches parents that day were calling the, the schools like well if my kid's not going to be on campus i'm not paying room and board you know oh, and yeah. i mean those there were lots of things like that or yeah so and, i don't blame them even if she's already worth millions and millions you know they're not they're not <laughs> worth did. millions and millions because they sat around going i guess that's fine like yeah you got to go after what's yours. I didn't get this rich writing a lot of checks. Uh, yeah, I didn't get this rich writing checks. <laughs> Buy them out, boys. <laughs> so so this is it. This is the swan, swan song of the Warner Brothers lineup. And I have an incredibly large old-fashioned here for you to explain to me what the hell happened to this movie. Because you know, honest to God, <laughs> I didn't finish it. You didn't watch it? No, I I watched it. I got about bitch. (laughs) I got about forty eight minutes into it with my wife. I said to her, "Hey, you want to watch that new Matrix movie?" She and and she has the best answer. She's like, "Yeah, I'll watch it with you," which is not the same thing as yes. It's just like, "Yeah, I'll I'll be in the room next to you on the couch while this is on." And you know, sometimes that works out, and she enjoys it. And sometimes she just couldn't give a rat's ass. But I felt bad for her, and I'm just like, what, what, what? Do you want to go do literally anything else? He's like, yeah. And so we turned it off, and like for the last 24 hours, I've been watching it in bits and pieces on my phone. You can't watch a movie like that. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. That may not be true, but so you're gonna have to tell me. What what happened? <laughs> and I'm going to drink this enormous cocktail. Man, that's a lot of work. <laughs> well, what do you want to know? I mean, the whole plot of the movie? We can start there. What did, what did you think of the movie? I have no idea. Oh, this is really good. This My... is the way to end the year. <laughs> My instinct I don't is... have an enormous old fashioned. <laughs> now I wish I did. My instinct is that it was terrible. Oh, it was terrible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
Yeah, and I really, really sat down and watched it straight through on the couch. No oh, interruptions. Well, I was like, I'm going to get through this. You you were in a position where you were home alone, so it didn't have distractions. I, I, I'd like to think that if I were in that position where I wasn't putting my wife through it, i go, uh, maybe I'll st- stick it out. But no, she was there, and so I was like, I can't make her do this. Um, now, you're an enormous fan of the original. You were in college when it came out, and you like I DVDs were suddenly a thing. I was in well, high school. But didn't, but didn't you go to college in 99, 2000? I, yeah, I began college in, in 99. This came out the summer of that, that same year. So I went to college having already seen it. And I was at least twice in the theaters. Might have been the first movie I, I, I'd actually gone to see twice in, this, you know, in the theater. I, I, I've rarely ever done that. I think this might have been the only, the only time I ever did that. So, yeah. And then when I got to college, I met people who were also very big fans of it. And it was at the beginning of the DVD craze. And I, um, a buddy of mine was just like, okay, well, we got to figure out what's D Cause this is, it was like a $25 purchase a DVD. Yeah, they now they're literally gi- giving them away. We've been giving them away <laughs> off and on for a couple of years now. But, you know, it was an investment. And, you know, I'm going to quietly talk as I, you know, just because I have a inflation, ca- you know, calc on my phone. Tell me, like, what things cost back in, like, 1850. And in the year 1999, $25 was the same thing as 40 bucks today. Like that's not a lot of money, but I haven't spent forty dollars to own content. You know, I guess since I bought the Matrix in nineteen ninety nine, like that was it. Like it, it was a big purchase. So we would get around, and, you know, we, we 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 would get together, and this is before I began drinking heavily. Oh well. Um, and we would watch the Matrix like once every two weeks or so. It just became a thing we did, and we watched a lot of other movies too. But we watched this one as like a go-to because it was just so damn good. Well, right. I mean, it was really, really popular. I was gonna say, did you, when you watched it with all your weirdo friends in college? Was the philosophy of the of the film what was important and interesting, or was it the kung fu? A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Like, I mean, to us, it was more like we, you know, we all went to go see it the summer summer before we met each other, and we were just trying to recreate the experience we had in the theater on a 13-inch screen in standard definition in a, you know, 9 by 14 cinder block room. Like, there, there was something about movies that came out that year where, like, I just kind of became aware of what it was to go to the movies. Like, I've been going to the movies since I was a little kid, and there's a few that stick out in my head. Like, the first R-rated film I saw in theaters, you know, without mom and dad, or I guess that was that first one period was seven which was hilarious like like that was the most intense movie i could possibly think to go to um at the age of like 14 or whatever it was and 
So there's a few things that stick out. American Beauty is one that sticks out because it was, you know, a hypercritical movie about, you know, suburbia without, you know, featuring, you know, you know, drugged out teenagers and things like that. And this movie was structured so well and paced so well and directed so competently that we were just hooked from minute one. Like, there was nothing about it where we were ever, like, aware of ourselves. We were just totally present for the thing. And that doesn't happen a lot. And it's become my benchmark for basically every movie I have watched ever since, is how much am I aware of myself right now? And I, I kind of use that, like, my phone as a metric. If I'm on my phone a lot during a movie, it's not a good movie. This is the same basic idea. And so, like, we were just trying to re- recreate this feeling of total immersion and being utterly surprised and confused by a thing when we didn't have that experience with, with, with most movies. And then getting a wonderful payoff, both in terms of story and in terms of action. And we were just kind of looking to recreate that. We'd talk about that as we watched it and we quote lines from it all the time. But that was really, you know, why we were engaged with it so frequently. It was not so much to discuss, and although I did discuss some of the deeper philosophical concepts, it was mostly just like, it was just, it was just how the movie made us feel as we watched it. And because it was just such a unique experience that you you can kind of only do it once. This would become a theme, I think, in this conversation. <laughs> you could really only do this once. Yeah, I, uh, I just see a lot of the commentary on this one nowadays is um, just how much of the meta-narrative is important. Now, for those who don't know, meta-narratives are when the piece of work or art you were looking at knows it's a piece of art or work. Okay, and it talks about itself the way you would talk about it. So in this film, he is a computer programmer who has made a trilogy of very successful video games called The Matrix. And the video games are basically everything he experienced in the first three films that we as an audience saw. And they keep talking about how they have to make a new one. And they struggle with that and what made the originals important and yada, yada, yada. And all the things they're saying are things that you and I in the real world have also said. And everyone's talking about this and, you know, it was how, how deep it was, how interesting, uh, how reflective it is of the original films. <laughs> all I could think was, there, where's the Kung Fu? I only <laughs> like the, you know, I, I don't care about illusions and free will and choice. Like that was just philosophy one-on-one mumbo jumbo to go along with kung fu action scenes and bullet time you know which which was a groundbreaking camera trick that they came up with to show off the kung fu so like i'm sitting here like i can't believe that many people were really into the philosophical underpinnings of these kung fu movies you know I I, maybe that, i missed the boat on that i don't know i think that they were primarily there for the kung fu and because there was something more cerebral going on, a certain member, a certain section of, of the audience, a lot of the guys I, you know, I, I went to college with really wanted to explore 
the other, the, the, the more philosophical side of the story. And it, the, 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 the fact that it existed at all, it was enough to, you know, for them to go and take that and run with it. So, but really it was the Kung Fu. It's the strongest part of the movie. You know, as you move forward to all, through all the sequels, they leaned away from the Kung Fu and towards the philosophical and the films got worse. You know, progressively much worse. And so, yeah, the less of that there is, you know, it's like less is less is more in this case. It you didn't need you didn't need to do all that. Basically. Uh, yeah, I it was an interesting concept. I mean, some people really like meta narratives. I find them a little bit I mean, they usually they come across kind of snarky. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, they hired the know. right guy here for snarky. Jesus. Who, who did they hire? Neil Patrick Harris. Oh, oh. Yeah. I was like, okay. Yeah. Okay, so mean... sidebar, because I'll forget about this. We love Neil Patrick Harris from How I Met Your Mother. I've met him at a book signing. He's an extremely charming gentleman. He's a weirdo, to say the least. Just watching the whole, like, uh, um, architect Architecture's Digest, like, they do this thing where they, sometimes they show you ridiculously fancy pants homes, and other, other times they show you, like, a, a celebrity's home. His home is so weird. It's great, and it's really, you know, full of character, but he's just a just a bizarre guy. But he kind of only, he doesn't have a range. I mean, he just, he was great at playing Barney, and he was great at playing Doogie Howser, and everything else I've been in, he's been in. Um, I've, like, I've seen him in, like, Gone Girl. He was weird and kind of creepy in Gone Girl, and, like, Apparently he's he's a great Broadway, Broadway performer. Like he did Hedwig and the Angry Inch. He's done a, a few other things, and that's been, I think, where he's, you know, I don't know, done better. But like this, those those roles have been nothing more to to his strengths than this type of stuff was. So I don't know what what you think about that. Um, I think it made more sense once he reveals who he's supposed to actually be. You know, he's like the bad guy, right? Which wasn't, I was sure that's what he was. I mean, the Wachowskis are not known for subtlety. Um, but he does such a 180 in terms of like personality because when he's playing um, Keanu Reeves' uh, therapist, he's like very calm, very, you know, one note the way his cadence is. And then once he reveals he's the bad guy, he's like acting like he's this cool hip guy. I was like, oh yeah, this is the Neil Patrick Harris I know. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of more interesting, but not yeah. very interesting. <laughs> not very interesting. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, a lot of people were talking about the philosophical parts of this, the meta-narrative and everything, and, like, okay, it was interesting enough, but the problem is the movie really stinks, <laughs> yeah so so like i didn't really care about the the meta narrative after a while i was like i don't even know what the hell is happening here <laughs> well I, I i i'm reminded a little bit of um and i i i, I tried to read this essay and i i think i <laughs> i know i bit off more than i can chew 
but we we had referenced a while back in talk in talking about David Foster Wallace and his impressions of what was going on in film and television, but mostly television in like the early two thousands. So about the time that that the Matrix was was out and you know had taken hold in the in the culture, and just about how irony was killing everything, and that postmodernism was sort of sort of eating itself. Like it, it had a place, it had a role to play in the fifties and sixties, as the counterculture began to examine everything that was sort of sincere in the post-war years. But then by the by the you know the nineties and the early two thousands. Everything was cynical and everything was hyper aware of itself. And, you know, Seinfeld was the pinnacle of that where you had, you know, all observation with no sincerity and no development of people. And I I was thinking about this, and I'm not sure if the connection is really strong enough to compare what he was saying about pop culture at the time and the and contrasting the the first Matrix movie to this movie, but that's kind of how I felt about this in general. And tell me if I'm out of my my depth here, but like the original Matrix was a really sincere movie. It it was overdramatic. It was bizarre. It leaned into everything. Like I just think about the the way that Lawrence Fishburne played everything. You know, like they, like the they, they, they bring Neil up to the, you know, room in the abandoned hotel with his two, two big chairs, and he turns around and goes, "At last!" and there's a thunderbolt behind him, and they're playing it straight, and then they, they do the exact same scene here, and they're winking at the camera the whole time, like. That that was what I think was so refreshing about the Matrix was, although you were talking about a guy who lives in a virtual reality that has imprisoned an entire planet, and how that you know you have to kind of have to cynically look at everything around you and realize it's all fake and that there's a real world somewhere else, they then go to that real world and live it. Like the it be, you know it becomes a real thing all of it and the contrast between the two and why one is better than the other and why one has change and real and real emotion in it and the other is empty and and sort of soulless like even though it's you know got all the creature comforts that that cipher um, covets you know there, there there was a a seriousness and a sincerity that was taken with the tone of the film by the directors. That was just not here at all, and whenever it tried to reinsert itself, it's, it it felt really forced. Did any of that make any sense? Yeah, well, that's that's part of meta narrative, and that it's hard to be sincere because the the work knows what it is. You know, if the characters know they're not real, then they can't be sincere because their lives don't really matter, which is kind of what what happens. Like. It's hard to take it seriously when they don't actually exist, and that's why um, you can't you can't play it sincere. Like the Muppets always do this, you know. <laughs> like, and it's true because, and it works great for the Muppets because they look at the camera and they giggle and they laugh and they wink, and that's the gag, you know. 
we know we're making a movie. It's not a huge deal. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, so you laugh at them. But if they look at the camera and they go, hey, look, we're trying to film this. You know, can we get this scene going here? Like it starts to get weird and you don't like it because now you're being taken out of it, you know. So this one, when it does that all the time, it, it feels it feels like the soulless cash grab that it is. I don't see any difference between this and Ghostbusters Afterlife, except people seem to be looking at it like it's some sort of deep movie when it isn't. You know, it's it's throwing the same imagery and the same nostalgic bait that you know, and it's pretending like it's not doing that, which which feels false to me. You know, so like if they're not going to take it seriously and they're going to throw crap on the screen, but not as good, then why am I supposed to care about it? That that doesn't feel right to me. No, and they and they're also very significantly playing on your attachment to the original movie. Like that's you know a small percentage of the film, but like a not insignificant aspect of it is just either the old footage of those movies yeah or, I was surprised or a re, a re, a, like a recreation of that footage and i'm like it was just you know it was it was disorienting yeah so i actually texted you and i said you know i remembered it on my own like remind me this is just like terminator <laughs> now i'm one of the few people who actually watched the other newer terminator movies because i'm a masochist <laughs> and and they were awful um because what though what they were doing is you're trying to extend a franchise that can't be extended and the second one falls into this a little bit too everyone praises terminator 2 it's mostly a rehash of the first terminator with better special effects but these other ones are, are far worse so what the other ones do is you know, with the time travel and the, and the new characters look different because they're played by new actors. You know, they throw all that nostalgia stuff at you. And to justify the existence, they, ha- they sort of hand wave away the details of all this stuff. And since they have to throw as much stuff that you remember in as possible, you know, the liquid metal guy and chases on highways and helicopter crashes, there's no time for things like character development and motivations that make sense and things like that. And so as I'm watching this movie, you know, after he's finally snapped out of the matrix and he comes back into the real world, all of that stuff happens in the almost the exact same way, right? We got to have ships that look the same and characters from previous films. And we got to have an agent Smith in here, even though he's a different actor now, and we got to have a new big guy who's running the show, who's Neil Patrick Harris and all this stuff. And all of this happens at the expense of everything else. I don't understand who any of these people are except for um, Neo and Trinity and maybe uh, Jada Pinkett Smith. You know, all these other new characters on the ship. I don't know who they are. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know why they feel it's necessary to get Neo out of this power plant. It wasn't explained. They didn't get any characterization like the other characters in the first Matrix movie are. I mean, they didn't get a whole lot, you know, Morpheus's crew or whatever, but you knew enough. You know, they all had different personalities and what have you. What's what's going on with the plot? Are people still plugged into the Matrix? Why? You know, 
are the machines fighting each other too? Are they not? Is it a truce? I don't know. We're just on to the next thing. It, it was awful. It made the movie unbearable to watch because I didn't understand what was what the hell was happening. And all the all the like, well, why is this scene happening? And Neil Patrick Harris would be like, I, it needs to be. I'd be like, that's not a reason. You can't just <laughs> do that. <laughs> it was the same with the Terminator movies. Like, why is it all of a sudden this mon- this monster is trying to attack us? <laughs> they literally say those files have been erased and. Jai Courtney goes, oh, well, isn't that convenient? And I can remember that moment so clearly because it was like the screenwriters literally didn't know what to say. And they just wrote, we don't know. (laughs) And the character goes, well, this doesn't make sense. It was the same with this movie. So I was like, why are people giving this a pass for its philosophy 102 now? You know, mumbo jumbo. And there was no Kung Fu. (laughs) There was very little Kung Fu. Well, we'll I mean, we can that. talk about like, the action scenes, yeah, but but the plot and all that stuff just gets a pass. I don't understand why, because it was garbage. It was absolutely terrible. So, like, the basic idea that happened, like, of the, of the plot, and it isn't even, I, I, I can't say the plot is, because, well, there isn't a plot. It doesn't exist. But there is an idea of one. And that idea is that at the end of... The Matrix Revolutions, which I'm now getting a strange new respect for. Um, Trinity, who gets it like wash right through the chest. Like there's no there's no ambiguity there. She dead. Like there's a that's a dead woman. And Neo also having his eyes burned out is also dead at the end of... And there was a whole big Jesus thing with like the way that he was portrayed. and So they're dead at the end of that movie. But Neil Patrick Harris, as Doogie Hauser, I assume, comes along and resuscitates them and plugs them back into something like The Matrix and finds that if he just keeps these two people plugged into this machine yearning but never engaging with each other that that will create enough energy to satisfy the needs of the machines because Zion's uprising somehow which had nothing to do with freeing the people plugged into the power plants somehow there was a shortage of (laughs) Well, let's see, but see, and like that was the problem with the original two sequels was that it the first movie ends by saying we're going to be waking these people up. You're going to lose your ability to generate power, and in doing so, we will win. Like you've made yourselves dependent upon us in some way, and we're taking back our control. And in doing that, we will destroy you. There wouldn't even be a war in that scenario. It's just like we're going to wake it up enough, enough people that you that your batteries will all run out of juice. Um. And and so in the you know in this in the second movies that didn't happen really then at all. So there wasn't really a power shortage. But all of a sudden at the end of the third film, you're supposed to believe that that there was, and you know the 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 analyst comes along and says i've got a solution i've taken these two dead people and made them alive again and just if we keep plugged in we're going to make more energy 
that way. And is am I somewhere in the ballpark? I can't even tell. Yeah, that's okay. that's what I gathered from it. Right. And because they're in a new version of the Matrix. Okay, so that's so it's a it, it it's a it's a new Matrix where they've made him into a video game developer. And Smith is there, played by a very smug um, Jonathan. Well, I can't. He's very famous. He's a Broadway actor. He's a song and dance guy. Um, Groff, Jonathan Groff. He he played um, um, the King in Hamilton. That's who he is. In case you that haven't that. Yeah, that was King. That was King George the Third in Hamilton. He's a he's a Broadway. Performer, <laughs> my wife's like that. Jonathan Groff. I went uh, apparently because Hugo Weaving is you know not at all interested in doing this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As as was Lawrence Fishburne. Well, yeah. Well, he said he wasn't even asked. Really, mm. bit of a slight. Um, but so yeah, and that's that's it, right? That's like the extent of the plot, and then they decide to go get him. <laughs> For some reason, I don't know why. I still don't know why they felt they had to get him out of there. So when you have really plot-heavy movies, where like there are certain rules and there's mechanics and things like that, breaking them is hard because people are going to know and remember, and then start to question. You know, what can they do? Why can't they do this? And this happens in fantasy and sci-fi things like that. So this one had a ton of that stuff that was just hand waved away. And some of it I could understand. It made kind of sense. Like at one point she says to them, like, we don't need to use phone lines anymore. And when we need to leave the matrix, we can just leave through like mirrors and things like that. We can transport directly and things. I was like, okay, you know, I'm sure technology would advance eventually. But then there were other things that I didn't understand at all. Like who's still plugged into the matrix? People, I'm assuming. And yet they have like robots that are there in disguise. And he says he can just turn them on when people are acting up and then they can control them. And then he says like, people are happy being here. They don't want to leave. And I'm like, do they even know they can leave? How does this work? (laughs) I mean, the whole plot was that the people didn't know that they were in a computer simulation. Is that still the case? I don't, I don't know. And that's why when like we have to rescue, you know, I saw Neo and I realized who he was and we had to do this and that. And I'm like, but where is that? Where did that come from? Why are you doing that? Why now? You know? Yeah. It just didn't make, it wasn't, an, it wasn't explained. So I didn't understand what they were doing. Yeah. No, that, I mean, it's, it, it was so unexplained that, like, I missed that line about, oh, we don't, we don't need to use the phone lines anymore, and no, we don't need to do this, and I mean, part of the reason that that's dumb is not, it's not just that, you know, there, there was inconsistencies in this, but the rules were helpful for a lot of reasons. Like being able to exit and enter the matrix was hard, you know. So they kept some of those things: broadcast depth, um, the fact that like I can get you in, but I don't know if I can get you out. 
Like there was certain things that they kept that were challenging, but then when it was just convenient to come and go, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to use the fun train tiny mirror in the bathroom thing. Like then they would just simply abandon all sense of, of the structure that the rules provided. Like that was what was so great about the first movie was it like, it, it was difficult to do this. It wasn't very easy to do. And the whole bots thing was was sort of strange. And it was just kind of like, well, anybody can be an agent. But the agents can't be everybody. Like, it was one of those things that, that sort of made... It was the real, the sort of the point of the whole first movie. And, you know, Morpheus spells it out for him. And, and it was in that scene where he thinks he's, he, he's in the Matrix... And he sees the woman in the red dress, and he says, "You know, says this this is an agent, and no matter how you know strong or fast they are, they come from a world that is that is built upon rules, and once you know what those rules are, you can break them, and that's the whole damn point. Is that like as close as the rest of them get to flying and jumping and doing all kinds of kung fu?" They can't do what Neo can do, which is to see what the rules are and and how to get rid of them. And here, they the rules just come and go, and there's sort of no there's there's no consequences, and it makes no sense. And w- without that structure, without 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 the rules that you can then break dramatically at the end of the first movie, there really isn't a whole lot of stakes, and things just change, and it's bizarre and confusing. Right, drove I mean, me that's a little the, bit nuts. That's the point of the first movie. So, I, st- I did see a really good YouTube video about the sequels, and everybody was extremely disappointed in them at the time. And they, I mean, they weren't as good as the first one. The first one is an unbelievably good self-contained movie with a beginning and an ending that cannot be improved upon because, at the end, the hero becomes basically God in that world. He can do whatever he wants. Right. He obliterates an agent from the inside out. He can fly. He can stop bullets. He can bring himself back to life. You know, like he he can't be killed. He's invincible. And and the video said, you know, imagine you're the two Wachowskis at the time. And they say, we want more movies like this. And they go, yeah, but the guy's God now. What are we supposed to do? And they say, I don't know. Fix it. (laughs) So what you have to do is you have a guy with a cigar chomping on it. Yeah, do it or we'll do it for you. You know, how do you take that and make it part of the cycle where he's not really in control anymore? You basically have to revert him back to square one. And I think what they did was clever. It's not wonderful because it it's a really, really hard thing to do. But they basically said, okay, this guy becoming Superman or Jesus or whatever is also a thing of control he just doesn't realize it and he has to become he needs to, he's he's still not free of the system that he was in okay i mean it makes sense and the movie wasn't good but at least that makes sense enough to me what's the point of it this time i have no idea like what was the point besides money of making this movie what was it trying to say or do because it didn't have anything because characters weren't fully developed. The plot was paper thin. You know, we're just making jokes about the old movies. So it was impossible to get invested in it. 
I, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine there, there's no non cynical pitch meeting for this movie. The closest that you get to is just like, well, people seemed generally dissatisfied with Matrix Reloaded and the Matrix Revolutions. So we should do another one where we do more stuff in the Matrix. Because that was like the big complaint about Revolutions was that it took place outside of the Matrix. And everyone's like, we want more Matrix. Okay, so we'll give them more Matrix 20 years later. Like, I, I don't know who this who asked for this, who this was for. I, I, I don't know. It just doesn't... Yeah. Which takes me to my main problem was not that there was a lack of Kung Fu, although there was. It's just that all the action scenes in this movie really stunk. So I left off... I'm in the motorcycle chase sequence. That's where, that's, that's where I was when I... This is about an hour ago now. I'm just like, I don't have any patience for this. I was a little bit... I had a moment where I was like, oh, he got them all to commit suicide. That was weird. Like That was the only kind of like crazy moment I felt the entire time. The only time like, I felt like an emotion in the movie it was when they, all the people were jumping out of their bedrooms. Well, that's what I bedrooms. mean. Are, are those people or are those robots? Yes. Y- yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. Because there aren't any agents. Like he says, that like why have a couple of agents take over a few people when you can have entire swarms of people? But I'm like, well, were they always there? Were they like taken over? One well, of them think, is in bed with a woman. Yeah. And, and he jumps out screams. the window. Like, I think the thing that made the original movie kind of insane and threatening was that everybody was an agent. And, and, and they even say it. Until they are unplugged, they are a threat to us. And, you know, Neo has qualms about what they're doing. He's just like, hang on a minute. Are we killing killing these, these, these people? And he's like, yes. We are killing all of them. But, you know, because they could be agents... You know, and they're they're still plugged into the system. They are a part of it, and they are they are our enemy. That's a big thing, but it's a subtle thing because and they do it in some overt ways. There's the guy in the helicopter. There's the old lady with the knife. You know, there's all these little scenes where, like, you know, all the people that Neo encounters randomly try to kill him by turning into agents. They don't just try to kill him because they're part of it just it's it's another it's another rule it's another layer it's another thing that makes it harder for everyone involved it's hard to be an agent because you can't be everywhere at once and it's hard to be neo trying to you know to infiltrate the system they took all those difficulties away in this and now it just became like an insane zombie horde by the end of the movie and Oh yeah, that 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 would be easier. You're right, Neil Patrick Harris. Like, why have one or two guys when you could have an entire army of the world? But it makes for shit storytelling because it doesn't provide you with any sort of construct from you know that anyone has to struggle to fight against. And it just right. It, I mean, all those things in the Matrix, 
you know, before they introduced the idea of like this human city with a million ships and captains, you know, they were alone. They were on their own trying to figure and they were only basing it on a faith that this guy would eventually realize who he was so that they could help him out. You know, so all those things are story obstacles in terms of like, you know, it's hard to get in and out of the matrix. It's dangerous when you're in there. Um, everybody is potentially a villain who can try to murder you. So you have to stay like a low profile, even though you're wearing black trench coats and sunglasses, you know, <laughs> so that's not what they have here. And so they have all these weirdo fight scenes that are badly choreographed and jumbled and hard to see. And they don't make a whole lot of sense because I'm not exactly sure who's a bad guy. You know, like, are they murdering people on that train as they're throwing them out the, <laughs> the window? I don't know. And then the Morpheus in this movie is a computer program that was designed by him. So, like, he's not even a real person, so I don't really care. Like, can't they just get another one of them? I mean, you know. Then they bring that French guy back, and that was a waste. <laughs> The fucking French guy, you know, oh, the, the I, fight, the fight scenes didn't have anything to do with any character development. So think no. back to the original one, right? He's fighting Morpheus. That's and they're like in that training session. That's that's character development. He's learning about himself, what he can do, the rules of the world, um, his own self doubts. And then when he fights Smith at the end, you know, yes, it's nice to have a fight scene, but. That's that's for him to understand that he's moving past where he was and now he's accepting who he's going to be. You know, those are character moments. That's good action. But there's nothing like that here. Nothing. There's and just like, we haven't done anything in an hour. Let's have them punch each other. <laughs> that's, and that's Neo bad really action. Neo really never develops at all. And it 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 does so in such a he doesn't develop in such a in such a stupid way. That like he has the fight scene with the guy in the dojo meant to evoke the other fight scene with the other guy with the other black bald guy in a dojo, and there's just you know yelling and emotions and you know all I could think of is like Ron Burgundy I'm in a glass case of emotion and that's all that I get out of that is that overacting ridiculousness where, where like he pushes really hard and everyone blows up somehow. Right. Like, what's the point of that scene? Because it's not like he walks out of there going, hey, I still remember all my old training from before. And he like, doesn't. He just explodes the entire thing with his hands and he goes, OK, whatever. Yeah. Like nothing. Ha- and then it comes to the end. Like, oh, I just got the end. When they, they go, can you fly? And he tries to do it. And <laughs> Well, that's not going to happen. And I'm like, Yeah. Apparently, yeah, I mean, I'm I like the tater. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus, I'm like, he's just the same schlub. And here's the thing about Keanu Reeves is that he has no business being talented because he's not. Like, he's a very material dependent actor. You give him good stuff to do, he's breathtaking. He really can be quite engaging to watch. And it doesn't even have to be a lot. John Wick is there's not a lot of depth of you know there's, there's no nothing going on there. It's but it's a good yarn. It's you know wonderfully supported cast. There's a lot of you know you know random John Leguizamo talking him up in one scene sells him for the for that entire franchise. Like 
he can be good if you give him the tools to be good. And they just didn't do that here. They gave him bad writing, lazy directing, no fight, fight choreography, and just schlubby actors to surround himself with. A bunch of no-names that aren't even remotely interesting to look at. And he can't do anything with it. Like, he's not, you know, he's not Al Pacino. Like, he's just not going to, you know, this is, you know, like, we we, we, we talked, uh, I don't know, I guess a year ago now about, like, Sean Connery and how, like, you put Sean Connery in your movie and it gets, like, 25% better just by virtue of him being there. This is not Keanu Reeves. He can't do that on his own. Don't make him try. It's not going to help. Well, yeah. Well, the story doesn't support anything because he doesn't do anything but look sad for an hour. And then when he gets out, he just readily accepts everything he's been told. Like, I guess I was right all along. And you just go along with that as an audience member because you remember him from original movies. And then he just goes along with everything. He just has this single-minded mission to get his girlfriend out of the machine, too. But he doesn't have any moments of, like, doubt or rediscovery or any of that stuff. Because there isn't any time. We're just moving right along with the plot here. Like, there's no plot for the first 45 minutes. And then you get barrage with it. Yeah, they just like once they fr- They're just taught, like the machines and then like the Indian girl and her plan and you know what they're going to do here and there. And I'm just like, Oh man, we haven't slowed down for a second here. Have we? I mean, they spent a lot of time talking about how sad he was. And then once he gets out, it's like nothing happened. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I wonder, so I just watched, we, we talked about uh, uh, the Patrick H. Willems, YouTube channel for Ghostbusters and he has a whole thing on the Matrix as well. He had two short videos about the scene transitions from from the first movie which are genius and the and the opening sequence and then he had a whole thing about like how to rewrite the the uh, the sequels. Um but in his short video on the opening sequence from the Matrix it's like six and a half minutes long. What's it's brilliant. Name? What? What's this guy's name again? Patrick H. Willems. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so if you guys haven't heard of him, he's a he's a filmmaker and a YouTuber that you should check out because he has a really bunch of really great videos. Some of them are like ridiculously long, but they're all the his one on 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 um, um on, on pop music in film is great. Anyway, um, but he did a whole thing about the the, the opening sequence of the Matrix the first one and just how brilliant how, how brilliant it is and that's like the first hour of this movie is what they were able to do in six and a half minutes in the first film give you characters you don't know who they are your your expectations are sort of, are somewhat subverted by what you see you're engaged you're intrigued and you have a lot of questions such that when you meet your your point of view character in Neo, you have the same questions that he does and you want to see this whole thing unfold. And so like you become invested in immediately in figuring out what your main character wants to figure out. And 
the whole mystery aspect of it, which was what was so engaging about the film when I first saw it, was like I did not know what was going on. It was unlike anything I'd seen before, but it just it didn't give you the information. It made you walk like walk through the whole process of finding out what was happening. You know, th- that's the first third of the first movie. And the and the setup comes just from that, you know, initial sort of James Bond style action sequence in the beginning. That, you know, that whole like you know, get the audience to want to know what's happening takes an hour here. And then you're left with another hour and a half where you have to explain everything and shoehorn kung fu and explosions and gun battles into it. That's you can't do that. That's not efficient. That's <laughs> just not a good way to tell stories. It I just, know. You know, and I mean you you put it the best way possible, which is like every sequel they've ever made to this movie just reinforces how good the first movie is. Yeah. And we're lucky because some sequels don't do that. They make the whole thing feel stupid. You know, st- stupid and cheap, and kind of like, okay, well, I guess that it sort of sours you on the whole idea. But this doesn't do that. This just no, makes you look back the at the one. standalone version of that, and you go, ah, "That was a great movie." Yeah, like I, I've never not talked to anybody where they're like, when they talk about the Matrix sequel, like the sequels come up, or even this one, and the first thing everyone says is, "That first one was so good. I'm gonna want to watch that." Like. Like even when I finished like halfway through this movie, it's like I just want to turn this off and watch the first Matrix because it's so good. <laughs> That's really <laughs> all know? I wanted to do. It's all I wanted yeah. to do. You know, and it's not perfect by any stretch, but there's so much about it that's great that that you appreciate from the kung fu and the you know the the acting is great. The music is is pretty good. It, it, the sound effects jive very well with the world building. Like it's it's a fun movie to watch. The, the sequels had none of that, and this one has nothing. This is this is a piece of garbage. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think one of the underrated things that, that that this guy Patrick Williams pointed out, you know, was the scene transitions. And I just watched like I re, I re, I rewatched Ronin the other day, and Ronin is another movie that does this too. Um, in in Ronin, it it it, it happens with like sound a lot. So like. There'll be a scene where two people are talking in a warehouse, and they're like, "All right, we're, we're going to go out and do the do the dangerous thing with the guns." And the guy will take the door and slam the door, and when the door slams shut, it cuts to a foghorn for a boat floating down the Seine in Paris, and that's where their their meeting takes place. And then once a different gun battle scene ends and they drive away and the next thing you know, there's a choir singing. So like, there's all these very abrupt and loud transitions that just shove you into the next scene by establishing everything with a very significant sound. It's something that like I never really noticed until I watched it this time was how often there was like a a loud sound cue accompanying a scene shift to really say, no, this is different now. You've gone forward five hours. You've gone ahead, you know, to a, to a different place. It's not a, you know, now we move over here where it's like fades and across, you know, there's like a cross thing. And scene transitions are really important. Everyone always makes fun of Shakespeare for being really boring. 
And I had a teacher in, I think, graduate school who was just like, one of the reasons Shakespeare is boring is because it moves so slowly. And if you can take advantage of the pace of a Shakespeare play, then you really should because it should basically function like a whirlwind. You know, one scene ends and the next time someone com- comes on stage, they should be halfway through their first s- sentence before they actually get there. Because usually the first couple sentences of a Shakespeare scene are meaningless. They're like, oh, here we are in the wood or the, you know, the palace or whatever. It's just like... They're scene setups. Yeah. And so they don't really matter, especially now when we can do all that with, you know, stage lighting or whatever else. And so if you come in talking, no matter what you're doing, just come in talking, the whole thing just seems faster. And that's what people want when they're watching plays and movies, is just for the whole thing never to seem like it stops. And this movie felt like it stopped a lot. You know, there was the whole thing with songs and this and that and the one pill song and um, there'd be moments of where they would kind of pause. And I think, you know, with the first with the first Matrix movie, I guess it's kind of split. It's split in thirds. But there are very clear breaks in those thirds. And you, you think of the first one as like, you know, when it when it comes out of the um, actual pod and they have to rebuild him like that's a slow scene the whole tenor of the thing changes it was frenetic and nuts for the first you know third of that film and everything kind of, kind of grinds to a halt and the pace of the film changes as your setting completely is turned upside down and the third section of the you know film i forget what exactly is that that transition if it's him like building their arsenal up in the uh in the construct or whatever but like you know you know that's the one point where like things kind of stop and they talk and they have a whole back and forth but you know here it's just like a lot of nonsense a lot of talking and a lot of people falling out of buildings and that's what happens in this movie i think how does yeah. it end? What 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 happens at the end of the movie? I I I'd, I'd like to know. Um, basically, what happens is they get away. <laughs> and do all um, the people who are helping them? Do they all get killed? No, they all end up making it. Even the girl who was like shaking and spurting blood. Yes. Even the girl that was shaking and sp- and spurting blood and talked about how she w- you know was so like enamored of Trinity that like you would get the sense that she would sacrifice her, her herself for her. She she not she makes it out because she's apparently dating the girl with the blue hair. Okay. At the end there's like that's, a that's why sec- there's like a half second scene where they're all celebrating on the ship that they got Trinity out and everyone's safe. And they like hug each other. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? Do those people have personal lives that I wasn't aware of? <laughs> that would have been more interesting to know. I don't even know what those characters' names are. Yeah, no idea. So so they all make it and they get Trinity out. Um did you see the part where they're where Agent Smith comes and saves them? Yeah, that that's just about so like Agent oh, that's Smith before they get on the on the motorcycles. I did not figure out for the life of me what exactly happened. So, like, 
they try and do a procedure where they try to convince Trinity while she's in the Matrix to reject being in the Matrix. And she does that when her fake husband calls her Tiffany for the thousandth time. And she yells at him and, and beats him up. And then they do a bizarre sort of like medical procedure where they remove her body from the system and transfer her temporarily to the new girl. And now she's not in the system anymore, but she's virtually there fighting with Neo and then riding with him on the motorcycle. Yeah. Much like how Neo is in the system, but he's not of the system. They're, they can't, you know, one of the rules is they can't just unplug you without you accepting coming out of it. Okay. And if they, like, if they pull the plug out of your head, you'll, your brain will die. Right. So they come up with some cockamamie plan to slowly remove her without killing her. But they say she has to make that final leap of accepting that she doesn't want to be part of the system anymore. And once she does that, then they just transfer her over and she can still stay in it just like Neo does. So he's in there but not plugged in. No, he's but he's plugged in on their ship. He's right. not in yeah, he's not in the mainframe or whatever the hell it is. That's a little they get out. And like, you know, once they escape on the motorcycles, they basically just get out. And um they celebrate. And then they go back in now that they're, you know, they go back in and they go and meet Neil Patrick Harris. And he's like, you'll be back. Oh, I'll find some other way to make sure this works. I'm not going to. I convinced the suits upstairs not to reboot the Matrix to the way it used to be, which doesn't mean anything to me because I don't know what the difference is. <laughs> and Trinity and Neo just tell him, you're full of crap. We're going to do anything we want. We're going to start changing everything so that people can have the choice to, to leave the Matrix if they want to. And they like punch him in the face a couple of times. And then they fly off together into the sunset because now she can fly as well. She has the same power as he does. And that's how it ends. Yeah, okay. And that's what I, I was like, yeah, okay, sure. I guess being the one isn't so special when you're not actually one. There's two. <laughs> <laughs> the, the deuce. That's, <laughs> that's what they are. Uh, yeah well when you don't set up you know stakes or character development or anything they're just they're alive at the end of the movie is the only difference <laughs> the last one they were dead now they're alive yeah, i like that's... them apples <laughs> well i got a number <laughs> how do you like them apples? yeah okay it's not a good movie it's really bad I would not recommend it. No, we would not not recommend. Just watch it. the first one. Just watch, first and one. then when you're done first with one. that, Stop. watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Don't watch anything else that has the Matrix name on it. Oh God, no! Just, just no. all right. Well, okay. <laughs> it's just so dumb. I can't. I don't know what else to say. Nothing. There's nothing else to say. Yeah, it's. I just... mean, and part of me is just like, like I'm really glad I didn't go to the movies to see this because I would have been like really, really angry by the end of it. And 
I don't know. Like, and only one of the uh, of the Wachowski siblings was involved with this, I believe. Um, uh, Lana. Yeah, the story goes that they were probably going to make another one anyway, and they asked her, and she said sure. And the other one didn't want to because they were like, "That story's over, and I don't want to revisit things I've done." But she did say at some point, you know, if they, if I hadn't said yes, they probably would have done it without me. So I figured, you know, I might as well still have some control over it. And it comes across more cynical in the film when the Smith character is telling Neo that, like, they're forcing us to make a Matrix 4. So if you want to get in on this, we got to agree to do it now. And he goes, oh, okay. But apparently that isn't really how it shook out. But they're making that, she was making that comment, you know. This is what, you know, we keep making these movies without the original people just to get people to pay for it, much like a Terminator film. There's been five or six of those things. Yeah. And nobody from the original really is doing it except to cash a check. I mean, James Cameron's not in them or, or working on them at all. So No, he he's no, he only did the second one just because, like, yeah, oh, they but they said, how, how you know, practice technology. Right. Like, we're going to keep making Terminator movies. You want in? And he goes, no. All right. Well, we're doing it anyway. Okay. So that's yeah. apparently what we would have gotten here, I'm sure. And part of me is just like, I mean, I don't know how much money they have. I really have no idea. You know, and I don't know how much James Cameron has. I imagine it's quite a bit. Um, But I kind of, I kind of appreciate James Cameron being like, you can do whatever you want with it. Like, I did my thing, I'm done. It's like you were saying about your, you know, the, the, the people that you know, who've you know written books that got bought out to be made into movies and they come out and they're just completely different than what the book was and in some cases you think people are like be really annoyed they took my book and they ruined it and other people are like no i got paid they bought the rights they gave me a <laughs> giant check i paid off my house and now i get to do whatever the hell i like it's just i really appreciate <laughs> yeah i really appreciate that because like you know, it's, you know, if you sell something, you don't own it anymore. That's the point. Like, you've you've sold it. It's You've let it go in that regard. And it can be hard for people, you know. And if it's hard, then you don't walk away from it. But at the same time, it's just like, you know, you can let it go. Like, the, you, you, I guess, so, so if, if they can say to them, like, we're going to make one with it, whether you're here or not. Then you know Warner Brothers must own something of that, and at which point you say, "Well, you this is the this is the cost. This is the cost of you getting to make the first movie and then the other two sequels. And if they want to go ahead and fuck with it, that's fine. Like you, you, you kind of have to have enough confidence in what you've done yourself to say that this stands on its own and it's brilliant, and you can make all kinds of schlock and call it whatever you'd like, but it doesn't you know it doesn't degrade what I already did." And I imagine that's a kind of confidence that's hard to come by in Hollywood. <laughs> so at least one out of the two of them was like, "No, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll try to help you to make this." And like, yeah, I mean, we already said before. I mean, like, this is one of the few where the movie actually looks better after these sequels. Yeah, you know that doesn't always happen. So like, I'm, it, that happened with Pixar when they were going to make another Toy Story. And Disney and Pixar had a deal before Disney owned Pixar. And they were like, we're, we're making another Toy Story. And they were like, uh, don't do that. 
And when they saw what they were making, they're like, oh my God, that's horrendously terrible. We'll do it. <laughs> and, the, and they made the sequel themselves. Yeah. You know, and I don't know what that Disney's version would have been like, but I'm sure it wouldn't have, wouldn't have been as good as the one Pixar made. And then wouldn't we have looked at Toy Story as a, a worse off film, like part of some crappy franchise? Probably. Look at the land before time. There's 20,000 of them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I can't even remember what the first one was anymore. I think I think that children's movies that I think that, that this hits home a little bit harder for kids' movies. I think that movies like The Matrix, to a certain extent like Star Wars, they will be okay no matter how many stupid movies you make you know, after the fact. I mean, Star Wars did get a little cheapened because they did try to redo it so many times. Like, almost bit by bit, the same damn movie again and again and again. Um... So I I I, I kind of see how that might have cheapened the original, and but with a kids movie, you really can ruin it because like your childhood gets attached to one thing. When they take that thing and they pervert it some way after the fact, it does leave a sour taste in your mouth for the whole experience because you have some nostalgia attached to it. It's harder, I would think, to hold on to that and be able to to, to look at something devoid of its predecessors you know in as you know in, in as fair in in as favorable a light but that i could just be talking out of, my, out of my rear end but you know it's both the strength of the original material you know plus the the genre i think that that that, that material uh, resides in you know and also because like you were kind of accustomed to them making a lot of kids' movies, and, and sequels are not a bizarre thing. Whereas, you know, as much as it was bizarre in 1981 to get um, The Empire Strikes Back, it was still kind of strange to get sequels to films like The Matrix in the late 90s. Still, the, 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 the whole franchise idea, which is now completely off the rails, wasn't anywhere near where you know where it is now. And so, like... You know, we we just kind of assume that this is what happens now, but it it wasn't a foregone conclusion. That, that's why they, that's why they made a very self contained story for the for the first Matrix. Yeah, that's the way to go. So, well, if you out there have any thoughts as to this abomination, you can let us know on Twitter or Instagram. We are at Three Drinks in Pod on both. That's at the number three Drinks in Pod. You can let us know on Facebook. You can email us at 3drinksinpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one big word. Uh, make sure that you're subscribing wherever you're listening. Uh, leave ratings and reviews. We really appreciate those. Uh, anything else? That's it. All right. As always, please drink responsibly. Uh, have a very happy new year, and we will see you all in 2022. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Chasing rabbits and 
Small. 